0: using the
1: Brain Can Do Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Brain Can Do Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Stevenson. Thank you for joining us and thank you for all the feedback, particularly on the podcast from the last few weeks. In particular, looking at leadership and culture... With Matthew Simons. Definitely seems to have a lot of you thinking and communicating with me in terms of your views on educational leadership, which is brilliant. I don't think I've ever claimed to have all the answers, but I think that's definitely most controversial episode so far. Not our aim to be controversial, but definitely getting people thinking about what do they want from their leaders and whether education might be slightly in the past with its preference for traditional leadership styles And the fact that a more autonomous culture also will have to shift how we view leaders and what they should be doing. But say, please keep following us on the Brain Can Do network. Start your discussions. Follow us on Brain Can Do. Contact us with any ideas and thoughts that you have. What I want to look at today is something different from leadership. Um, In particular, I want to focus on flourishing. And this is a subject that, to be honest, I thought I knew quite a bit about and had a good understanding about how we could flourish. And a lot of these conversations I've been having, looking at individual stories of success or their views on leadership, sort of should all amalgamate in people flourishing. Last week, I spoke to Dr. John Bill, who is a research fellow here at Brain Can Do. He's also researcher in residence at Eton College and head of public speaking and MUN for Queen Anne School. So uh, John is obviously a a very busy man and a really nice link to what we looked at last week with Red Earth Education and this whole global awareness and how important it is. Uh, John, on top of everything else, um, has volunteered and worked with Red Earth Education for a few years and he was the one that organised the school trip that I went on a couple of years ago and really got us involved in that side of things and really encouraged me to come out of my comfort zone. So what I'm going to share with you now is my interview with uh, John about flourishing, and you'll realise actually how little I know about such a, a complex topic. So John, flourishing is a really important concept in education right now. Could you tell me a bit about what flourishing actually means?
0: Yeah, so that's a very difficult question to answer because there's lots of definitions on the table, and an important area of research in flourishing is trying to best define flourishing. And there's various theories available and various criteria have been specified and put forward as to, to how we should understand flourishing. I, I think, broadly speaking, um, within the literature of flourishing education, there's three particularly important positions in the contemporary literature. Uh, the first of which, I mean, flourishing has a, has a very long history, and it's, if you like, primarily a, an Aristotelian concept going back to the philosophy of Aristotle, where, and in ancient Greek thought more broadly, where Flourishing is defined in terms of something called eudaimonia, which we would roughly translate as happiness or flourishing. And Aristotle's concern was to articulate what it meant to lead uh, the good life. What what is the good for human beings? What is the best possible life for a human being to lead? And he defines that as a life of eudaimonia, a life of flourishing. And for Aristotle, that really relied on cultivating virtues um, to to fulfill one's potential and and to to live the best possible life. And his work's been extremely influential to this day. It still is. And the first kind of approach towards flourishing that's very influential in education today is a kind of a neo-Aristotelian approach, which develops those ideas from Aristotle and seeks to apply them in education to, to try to enhance the flourishing of students understood in this kind of eudaimonic way. So for example, the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues at the University of Birmingham takes a neo aristotelian approach towards flourishing, where uh, flourishing is defined in terms of happiness and the fulfilment of potential, which is reached by developing various types of virtue. Uh, for example, intellectual virtues, civic virtues, um, so-called performance virtues, those that you know help us to, 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 to do certain things well in our lives and moral virtues. And those help us to fulfill our potential and and become happy and lead the best possible lives we can. That's one very, very influential uh, position on flourishing and and they're doing some amazing work at the Jubilee Center. And their work has been embedded at a school they've set up called the the University of Birmingham School, where they seek to promote flourishing through various strategies they've employed there. Another dominant strand um, in contemporary literature on flourishing, is defining it in terms of well being. So, for example, positive psychology defines flourishing in terms of well being. And that's been very influential over the last decade, particularly with the work of Martin Seligman, the so called father of positive psychology. He published a book in 2011 called Flourish, where he argues that flourishing is to be understood in terms of five elements that contribute towards psychological well being. So, on this model, flourishing is understood in terms of Psychological well-being. To enhance psychological well-being is to flourish. How do we enhance psychological well-being? We enhance five elements, which he calls PERMA, the PERMA, PERMA acronym: positive emotion, so feeling happiness, for example. Engagement, which is, for example, how often you find yourself in a state of flow, so losing track of time. So imagine you're having a great time with friends, and you just you don't know what time it is. You, you don't know how long you'll be doing it for because you're having such a great time. That's engagement. Positive relationships, you know, good relationships with family, friends, and your colleagues, for example. Meaning, you know, how meaningful you find your activities and your life as a whole, and accomplishment, you know, feeling of accomplishment you get from what you do. That's been a very influential model, and various developments have taken place over the last decade. For example, one is called Perma V, where they add vitality because in that Perma model, it didn't say anything about physical health. Vitality concerns physical health. You know, your how much you how much you can move throughout the day and how you're feeling overall and that's been another influential model and that's inspired a movement called positive education which applies the principles of positive psychology and education and there's various schools throughout the world and also some universities that apply positive um, psychology and education, positive education institutions. Um, The third kind of influential Account of flourishing in the contemporary in contemporary literature is, is that of the Harvard Human Flourishing Program. And that, I guess you could, you could say actually it draws upon both those schools of thought, the neo the position and positive psychology, as well as having its own account altogether, um, in that the Harvard Flourishing Program work un- underpinned by its director, Tyler Van der Weel defines flourishing more broadly than just psychological well-being. It defines it in terms of complete well-being, a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good. That's how Van Der Weel defines it. And his work has, uh, he's engaged in this um, uh, thorough survey of empirical studies on substantial contributors to well-being and argued that um, what to flourish, we need to be doing well in five domains, happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. And it sometimes adds a sixth domain, financial and material stability, because that enables us to flourish across time rather than at a particular time. And you see there that that, uh, I describe that as a kind of a hybrid of the two in in one sense, because it involves character and virtue, um, a criticism that's sometimes made of positive psychology that doesn't Pay sufficient attention to character and virtue. The PERMA model didn't mention those, whereas the neo aristotelian model focuses primarily on character and virtue. The definition from the Harbour Flourishing programme incorporates that in and, and has both there. Um, so uh, within those three areas, one division that's quite salient is that you get certain positions that define flourishing in terms of well-being, and it varies how broadly we define well-being. It could be psychological well-being only, it could be well-being defined as broadly as possible. Harbour Flourish program defines flourishing as a state of complete human well-being, or we could focus on something different. So for example, neo aristotelian approaches focus on developing one's character and developing virtue as a means to fulfilling one's potential and uh, reaching a high state of happiness and that being what it means to flourish. Both of those, all well, all three of those approaches and others, are influential in education, and increasingly so, and can be embedded within education and promoted. But the way in which we try to promote flourishing education and embed flourishing education depends on the framework we're working with. And there's a few frameworks, and there are many others, some of which are kind of developments of those frameworks. Um, and there's various ways in which you could say, pilot an intervention that seeks to enhance flourishing based on the the kind of definition you're starting with in the first place.
1: What drew your interest into a topic such as flourishing?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, my background's in philosophy, and this is a big topic in philosophy. What it means to flourish, what it means to lead the good life is is a a longstanding topic going back to antiquity in philosophy. But also, I think one of the main aims of education should be to promote flourishing. And then this is a, a widely held view that the increasingly widely held view is that the aim of education, the ultimate aim is to promote human flourishing and well then the question is how, how do we best do that in education as a, as a teacher, and educational researcher, that's of huge interest to me and also some of the dominant theories of flourishing hold that it should be defined in terms of well-being and that's very important to how we live our lives in the best possible way. And it's something we can, you know, if we if we gain knowledge of how to do that and how to do that well, then we can both apply it to our own lives and also help to improve the lives of others, including the students we teach, um, but also families, friends and so on, by trying to um, live in such a way that promotes our own well-being and helps us to flourish, at least when we define flourishing in terms of well-being. So it's a it's very important and very useful. Uh, thing to learn about and know about and, and apply in our lives, as well as being philosophically and intellectually extremely interesting.
1: Brilliant. So you actually, my understanding, is you teach flourishing lessons at Eton, is that correct?
0: Um, I've taught, I've designed and taught a course on human flourishing. So we have these courses that sixth form students can take um, optionally in their timetable. So they have their a subjects and then they have options courses where they can choose to take a subject for a couple of lessons a week. And there's a various set of courses that are offered by by teachers. And the one that I propose to offer a designer talks on human flourishing. That was for year 12 students last year. And that's a course that's partly on what it means to flourish, but also how to promote flourishing in our own lives. So yes, I, I have taught that. I'm also involved in various research projects on interventions that aim to embed human flourishing in school and university curricula and try to promote human flourishing through education. Uh, and I'm also involved in some school interventions that try to promote certain aspects that contribute towards human flourishing. For example, character education interventions that focus on developing academic resilience and resilience is widely regarded as being an important uh, feature of one's character that contributes towards the flourishing life.
1: With a topic that's so sort of grandiose as as flourishing and there's so much that you could get into, where do you start with introducing this to sort of 16, 17 year olds?
0: That's a great question. Uh, I think the first thing to do is to introduce students to the key concepts behind it and why it is important to know the kinds of things that they should be looking out for and trying to develop in their own characters and then try to foster in others in order to help others to flourish and to in, increase flourishing their own lives and to, as it were, to, to give them the kind of vocabulary through which they need to understand these concepts and more broadly the concept of flourishing. I mean, for example, if you're trying to develop certain character virtues as a wider project to, to enhance the degree to which you'll flourish in your own life, then you need to understand those virtues and those concepts. For example, that The concept of self-efficacy, you know, the the idea of um, our our own perception of um, our confidence in how well we can engage in the activities we undertake and how well we can um, fulfill them. It's important to kind of understand that as part of what it is that we're seeking to do as developing that character virtue. Another one would be, say, I just mentioned resilience. Well, then what is resilience and, and how is it best developed? We need, we need to develop a vocabulary for, for talking about these things in the first place, a kind of conceptual repertoire in order to then get a firmer grasp on what it is that we're trying to do, what the point of all this is and what the wide range is and how it connects to flourishing. And of course, the, the biggest concept to, to be defined then, and to, to be described and, and be discussed amongst students will be that, that biggest concept, the overarching one, flourishing and how various parts of um, the various things we're doing contribute towards that for example character virtues or certain aspects of, of well-being so I think that's that's where you'd begin with things and um, explain the importance of this and how it can be built into one's life and built into one's built into an educational program or be something alongside an education program that nonetheless is an important aspect of what education is trying to do I think those are important ways of introducing students to it. That would be though, if it was say something more broad, like a school-wide approach towards enhancing flourishing, if it's something like a course that students are taking and, they, and they've chosen to take in that course. And, and so you know that they're they're interested, they're very interested in the concept because they've offered the various options available to them. They've chosen to take the course you're teaching and in, in flourishing, as opposed to say, a school-wide intervention in which all the students are expected to in, engage with this a certain for a certain period of time each week then I think the form it can take is slightly different of course it would begin with things like trying to define and articulate what it means to flourish and the various things involved in it and why it's important but it could take a different form in terms of how you outline the concept and what you're trying to do in the course and the course could be say uh, it may, 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 maybe it would be so practical it might be more theoretical we're trying to just understand the philosophy of flourishing so it takes a different form depending on what you're trying to do um, and i give given two examples that say a school interventional or a course.
1: Brilliant thank you for that John and looking at all the other things you do in your sort of your current career at the moment it seems to me that you promote flourishing in everything you do not just your <laughs> teaching but say things such as as MUN public speaking debating at uh, charity work they're all things that you encourage students to get involved in um, what benefits do you see sort of all of these things, in terms of helping students flourish themselves.
0: Right. Well, that's 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 a really. First of all, I'm extremely flattered that you that you would say such thing about me. Uh, that makes me um feel uh very happy about the way that you perceive the way I live my life. Um, thank you. Um, so, so your question, I take it, is then um certain activities, so modern nations, public speaking activities, community engagement projects, how those contribute towards the pursuit of human flourishing. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So something like community engagement. Well, it's community engagement. I would argue is extremely important to the promotion of human flourishing, uh, partic- and in particular in education as something that we should be encouraging students to do. Why? Well, one of um, a, a key finding um, in well-being interventions in the well-being literature and in, in psychological studies relating to um, how we can foster flourishing in education is that. Acts of kindness towards others can significantly enhance one's well-being, one's feeling of happiness, life satisfaction, meaning, purpose and so on. All of which on dominant theories in the literature on, on well-being as, as that which you know enhances human flourishing are, are very important and community engagement projects are often trying to do those kinds of things. They're trying to engage students with their wider communities in order to benefit the community. Also, in order to have benefit for the students themselves in educational exercise. Um, but th- that can involve various actions that are seeking to promote kindness and seeking to, to do good for others, to help others in various ways. And that's important. Um, and and Theories and and evidence suggests that acts of kindness in that kind of way are important for promoting well-being. So I think community engagement is very important for for various reasons. You can provide evidence to show that. Um, Something such as MUN and activities such as Model United Nations and public speaking, those kinds of instances, well, they... uh, So it will be a little more difficult to articulate how they contribute to flourishing, but I I think we can do. Students in those kinds of cases, the ones that volunteers do those things, want to enhance their skills in certain areas that contribute towards skills they want to cultivate because perhaps they support their wider aims with their future careers or just because they are important skills themselves, such as public speaking. That's undoubtedly one of the most important skills we should all cultivate. And a, a one of the a, a kind of another finding in the evidence of well being is that it's important for developing your well being to identify your signature strengths and to try and maximize how much you employ them in your life and to get better at employing them and get you know, make those you know, enhance those strengths more and more and so for example let's say uh, a student wants to enhance their public speaking abilities and then make that a character strength well the best way to do that is to participate in public speaking activities, especially educational ones, where one receives some degree of, say, support and training in how to do public speaking better, and then to practice those in an, in a high stakes environment, such as a public speaking competition of some kind. Uh, the same can be said for an event such as the United Nations, and that involves various skills such as debating skills, diplomacy, and so on. Those are also... Areas of education in which students can discover what their strengths are. Modern United Nations is a fantastic educational activity, I think. It's, it's a great example, it's perhaps one of the most perfect examples of project based learning. And it's quite unique. I mean, you get model European Parliament as well, but it's, it's quite unique in that you often find that when students do that, they say they haven't really participated in anything like this before in education and, and they would love to do it again in the sense that it's it, it's partly a kind of a drama exercise. You, you really get into it. You pretend to be uh, a diplomat representing a nation and students really get into it. I mean, they really do. And, and often students over the years have said to me they were surprised how much they got into this, how, how much they they really took it very seriously. Because when you've got a collection of students all doing that together, the energy, between them, I think really brings out this: okay, we are we are really here. We're, we're taking this deadly seriously, and we're, we're going to make some real progress here. And I'm really going to argue my points and stand by the principles, um, you know, that I'm that I'm trying to support here, and then this resolution that I'm trying to to get um, support from other nations for at the conference. Um, and through that kind of atmosphere, debating with others in that a unique environment where you're you're acting out being uh, diplomats for nations, you can discover skills that you might not have otherwise known you had um, through that kind of opportunity. Uh, I mean pretending to be a diplomat, I mean let's say you want, you you then discover that you want to go into a career in diplomacy or international relations, um, but that wasn't something you'd really considered in great detail before, you just took this opportunity because it was a very good opportunity. So how does that relate then to well-being and flourishing? Well as I said, discovering what your signature strengths are, your character strengths are, has been, uh, the evidence suggests that's an important aspect of developing well-being and opportunities such as modern United Nations offer a good chance for students to discover what some of their signature strengths might be for those who already have certain signature strengths, such as let's say they, they put public speaking as a, a main strength they have or, or um, you know, debating with others or something, or bringing out um, uh, the ideas in others as an excellent strength, um, and they then can enhance that through that kind of activity, um, or teamwork, to, to go more broadly, because those are quite specific strengths I've just outlined there, if we say a, a more broad um, uh, strength is just teamwork, but it's a great opportunity in order to, to enhance that, something like model United Nations. So that's one way. Um, There's various others. I mean, these are things that are extremely meaningful and purposeful. And they are things that bring about a great sense of accomplishment for students, all of which contribute towards enhancing well-being. So those are some ways in which I think they can support flourishing.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that, John. As you're talking there, I was think about I always think with students, there's two elements to get them to really experience something say one is by educating them on it but then you need to follow it through by giving them those opportunities and would you say that's the same with flourishing that everything you're doing is vital in terms of teaching them about flourishing but for them to really grasp it you need to give them some opportunities to say experience that for themselves
0: absolutely yeah i'd agree with you 100% um, and i mean that's that really relates to a general principle about learning i think that learning is only really effective when we're applying the theory about learning into practice. I mean, it's it's rare. I mean, that's that's not a very good example because it's rare that we do actually learn the theory about learning before we go and learn. And I think that's something we should do more in education, teach students more about how it is that human beings learn and how they can learn better rather than just learning because we can learn better by knowing a bit more about how we learn best. But I mean, to, it is nonetheless a wider principle about the ways in which we learn in life. that we, we, we learn some piece of theory about some area and then by only by really applying it, do we learn it well and consolidate it in our minds. Um, if you take something like learning a language, for example, learning you know, the various grammatical rules in the language, if you're not also practicing and them, putting them into practice by trying to speak the language, trying to write the language, trying to translate from ear as well as on the page and so on, you're not going to learn the language very well. So absolutely, I think that um, it's, you will only go so far if you teach the theory behind um, certain theories of, if you like, human flourishing, you need to actually get people to, to practice doing these things if they want to flourish in their own lives and promote flourishing in other people. Yeah.
1: What do you say to the teacher who, and I think it's very difficult to dispute anything that you've, you've said there, but the teacher who doesn't see promoting flourishing as their responsibility, if that makes sense, they think, I'm good at my subject, I'm going to teach my subject, and that's it, and perhaps almost dismisses this idea that teaching flourishing is is an important part of education. Have you got any sort of response to that sort of viewpoint?
0: Well, a lot of this hangs on how we define flourishing in the first place, because on one way of defining flourishing, that kind of response is completely defensible. And I don't think there's anything in particular wrong with it. We need to not only define flourishing, but how flourishing then relates to education as a whole. So if we think that the ultimate aim of life is to flourish and the ultimate aim of education is to support that aim of life by supporting human flourishing, then in some sense, education in all the things it does will inevitably support human flourishing so there's not really that response as an option by fostering um, effective learning in students by teaching them your subject by developing their knowledge and various epistemic virtues and other intellectual virtues through your subject by preparing them for the workplace by preparing them for their, their lives in various respects you are supporting flourishing on a certain definition but that's one definition um a i mean a, a, a widespread and influential definition of flourishing is to define it in terms of well-being on, on on certain schools of thought in terms of just psychological well-being in others more broadly well-being as a whole and you can imagine um a teacher offering a response uh, to, to the question you've given by saying precisely that well it's not really my job to be in, in in the teaching of my subject be promoting well-being it's, it's my job to be um trying to develop their skills in this subject as well as possible for example to get their knowledge to as high a level as possible within this subject and to develop the the key skills associated with that for example in my own subject philosophy it would be to develop their critical thinking skills their reasoning skills their discussion skills their various epistemic virtues, also certain moral virtues, such as uh, charitability, uh, humility, um, working with others to try and pursue the truth, and so on. And, and then interla- you know, these interlink with both being epistemic and, and moral virtues and other kinds of virtues too. And to develop their knowledge of the history, ideas, in philosophy in relate- to, to a certain degree in, to, in relation to the areas they're studying, and to, to make sure that they're aware of the, the most important ideas in a certain branch of the history, of philosophy, but also in general, to, to make sure they're sensitive to the ways in which the history of philosophy has been distorted because of things such as epistemic injustice and, um, and not sufficient attention to the work of philosophers, for example, in, in Eastern philosophy, um, to the work of women philosophers and so on, to, to develop these kinds of skills and these kinds of virtues. Uh, and I could just say that's that's my aim, what I'm trying to do. And I, I have very broad aims. I could even say I'm, I'm trying to get these students to pursue wisdom and pursue truth through doing those things. But I don't. Let's say I don't really think that that is enhance. You know, is is I'm not teaching them about flourishing if I define flourishing in terms of say psychological well-being. I'm really enhancing their minds. Let's say when I do that. Let's let's say I, th- I mean I don't think that. I think that contributes towards flourishing even in terms of well-being. But let's say I think that. Let's say I think the two are separate. You have flourishing, defined in terms of psychological well-being on the one hand, and all of the skills I've just mentioned and others associated with teaching philosophy defined as broadly as the pursuit of truth and and wisdom on the other. And I don't think what I should be doing is teaching well-being. Well, I think there's something to be said for that response. I don't think that's um, necessarily problematic. Uh, I don't think it it should be the job of an individual teacher of a particular subject to be teaching well-being in their subject. I think it's more the job of an educational institution as a whole and of school leaders and university leaders and educational leaders in general to be thinking of ways in which the institution can provide the means of enhancing the well-being of students. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that as such. I do think that if we want to do the best possible job of developing um, students well-being through any approach taken at any education institution, we should find ways to try to embed it effectively in curricula because it's it's best if the best possible environment to develop character skills and virtues which are integral to cultivating one's character such that one can flourish. Uh, is to make sure that uh, try to embed them throughout the entire atmosphere of an institution, such that it's kind of built in, sewn into the fabric of the life of of an institution. So and that will involve, of course, within particular subjects. And there are. Interventions, for example, in positive psychology that have done that at certain schools and universities where they've tried to relate what's going on in, in certain subjects to the aims of enhancing well-being throughout the curriculum more, more generally. For example, uh, one might you know read pieces of literature in, in English lessons that explore characters that embody exemplars of resilience in order to better understand what resilience is and so on but i think that if we do that kind of thing it needs to not be done at the cost of the having the best possible curriculum and the best possible learning and education experience it shouldn't be that trying to enhance psychological well-being comes at, 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 at a cost to you know changing the curriculum so much so that actually we've got not as good a curriculum if anything the curriculum should be going up becoming better as a result so if for example we we choose to teach certain say an English literature department chooses to teach uh books gets get you to read certain books within their curricula that embody um, that feature characters that embody certain character virtues you want to teach as part of the well-being program well that should only aim then to enhance the curriculum in general it should be, well, we've got a better curriculum, also, that's a better book to read rather than, OK, we're actually compromising here. No, that shouldn't be the case because um, education needs to be focusing on learning primarily. And of course, well-being is an absolutely vital aim of education. And I, I do think that flourishing is the ultimate aim of education. But if we're defining flourishing in terms of well-being, um, it's it's not the duty of the individual teacher to be doing this, it's the duty of the institution to be providing an environment in which this is best fostered. And if we venture into embedding it in curricula to make sure that when we do that, that only enhances the curricula or at least doesn't make the curricula less good. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that really important distinction that teachers shouldn't be thinking that flourishing in the curriculum are separate. And almost, oh, I now need to do my five minute flourishing section of the lesson that takes away from you doing. Say, you made a really good point there, John, that actually these things should be interweaved. Um, and that's when it's going to be most effective. Yeah. What I would say there is, and again, I completely agree with you, that this is uh, such an important topic that it needs to come at institution level. If you are are a teacher and you're looking around your school and you don't have community outreach, you don't have public speaking, you don't have yeah, and you don't have debating, not saying you need a checklist to have all of these but having something where students have the opportunity to flourish is really important and if you're working somewhere where you don't see there's enough of it then that is a challenge out there for you to try and see what can you do because say john is a great example of someone who's put on a lot of these things at the schools he's worked at with great success uh john final question um in terms of other ways that you've been looking at supporting people is you've been uh, heavily involved in the Brain Can Do handbook of, of teaching and learning mm-hmm. so for teachers who want to know more about your sort of thoughts what can they what can they get from you in, in that book?
0: In that Well in that book I, I don't talk about flourishing in that book um, another key area of interest of mine is on the role of research in education I mean that's kind of what I what I do now I'm, I'm a I'm an educational researcher and um, I, I'm very grateful a very privileged to have this position I have where I, I get to work as a researcher within a, within a school and I, there are an increasing number of schools that have researchers working there and increasing number of teachers engaging in research and I think this is fantastic for the profession and I hope that this only continues that, that there become more and more people Um, having positions which are which are partly research based or having opportunity to do research in there within within schools Um, and I'm very interested in in the role of research education and how how far it can go and what its limits are I'm also interested connected with that in the science of learning and how how far it can be applied and what its limits are as well I mean that relates the second part of that relates to my wider research and philosophy and my PhD topic, really, that was on something called scientism, which we could, I guess, broadly define as excessive belief in the power or value of science. I mean, science is amazing and incredible and it ought to be given the absolute utmost respect, but there is there is arguably something where we can exaggerate our, um, our hope and our, our aims for science so much so that we can say dogmatically assume that scientific findings can be immediately and straightforwardly applied in non-scientific areas of inquiry maybe we can reduce away non-scientific areas of inquiry just to being scientific areas and philosophy is sometimes a subject that's in the firing line for that so that's something I'm very interested in and in that chapter in the book I try to articulate what the limits of educational neuroscience might be and why it's important to be aware of those to be doing good educational neuroscience so education neuroscience has enormous promise and in in education but it's important that we're aware of what its possible limits are because we don't we want to be we want to have a culture in education where we see what educational findings what research findings from educational neuroscience and other areas of the science of learning uh, can do to really benefit education but we don't want a culture where We end up just assuming that because something is um, a a new finding from psychology or neuroscience that it can be immediately and straightforwardly applied in education or that one is a bad teacher because one isn't employing this stuff in their practice. That would be a horrible culture and that would be an example of what I call scientism in education or what I call in that chapter educational neuroscientism. That's my contribution to that chapter. um, But otherwise, I was one of the co-editors in in that book with, with Julia Harrington. Amy Fancourt and Kat Lutz, and there's some amazing chapters in there on, on really important topics like resilience, gratitude. There's a, a good chapter on gratitude in there, executive functioning skills and many others. And it was a, a real pleasure to work on that book with the editors and the contributors. And I learned a great deal from it. And the chapters in there are, are very valuable, I think, for um, employing educational neuroscience in a coherent way in education, i.e. a non-scientistic kind of way.
1: John, thank you so much for your time today and sharing all that really valuable information with us.
0: Thank you so much, Ben. It's been great fun. Thanks a lot.
1: That was Dr. John Bill there giving us really insightful comments about flourishing what it actually means to flourish and some great ideas there about how it can be incorporated into educational practice as you heard at the end there if you're looking at more ways to implement things into your educational practice the brain can do handbook of teaching and learning practical strategies to bring psychology and neuroscience into the classroom is out now available to buy simply go on to google first thing that comes up you'll see us there brain can do handbook lots of different outlets that you can buy that from and really the key point of that book is to give you those practical strategies that teachers can pick up and implement and see effective results in their lessons. That's everything for today, thank you for joining us, I've been Ben Stevenson.